What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Welcome to Intelligence Squared. I'm Connor Boyle. On today's episode, Cal Flynn, the award-winning author, joins us to talk about the allure of abandoned places and how she has discovered new stories and an ongoing sense of meaning in locations seemingly long deserted by humanity. Cal Flynn's Islands of Abandonment was one of the UK's best-selling books of 2021. It was the Sunday Times Science and Environment Book of the Year and won her the Sunday Times Young Writer of the Year Award. The book explores sites such as Chernobyl, largely abandoned since the nuclear disaster of 1986 and now back in the headlines due to the tragic conflict surrounding it in Ukraine. She also reflects on an uninhabited Scottish island where feral cattle live wild and Detroit, once America's fourth largest city, where economic hardship has led to decay and silent neighbourhoods in some parts of the city. Joining Cal to discuss the book today is the science broadcaster, author and physicist Helen Chersky. Here's Helen with more. Cal, thank you so much for joining us. It is a beautifully written book. And of course, I have to declare an interest here because I was one of the judges for the Bailey Gifford Prize last year, and this book was shortlisted. And it, it really was, it's, it's an absolute pleasure to read. But to start us off and to introduce the audience to the book, just tell us how you got started on this project and how you found or how you chose the places that you went to. Sure. So Islands of Abandonment, the format of it is that it's 12 or 12 and a half different abandoned locations kind of around the world. And each of them, I felt, acted as a sort of case study of a different aspect of the ecology and psychology of abandonment. So um, I went to places that included uh, abandoned farmland in Estonia, to Detroit, to the Chernobyl exclusion zone, which is in the news at the moment. I went to an abandoned island off the north coast of Scotland. The way that I found these places, it was a bit of a mixture of, I guess what I've been thinking of as top-down and bottom-up story creation. So some of them I knew that I needed to include them because they were famous examples and it was more a matter of figuring out exactly why I wanted to write about them. And then for the others, there might be an issue, especially like a, a scientific issue that I wanted to talk about because I felt it gave some really important insight into the human relationship with the natural environment. And then I just needed to find a place that sort of exemplifies that. So that, for example, uh, I went to an abandoned botanical garden in Tanzania because I was looking for somewhere that sort of embodied this idea of invasive species settling into environments because that's a controversial area of ecology at the moment called novel ecosystems. I guess I got sort of interested in the subject 
initially because I, I, I went on a short trip to a place that didn't make it into the book, just off the west coast of Scotland, an area called the Slate Islands. They're quite near Oban, if you know the area. And um, those are 19th century slate quarrying um, areas and they've been flooded with seawater. I went there to go wild swimming having seen some beautiful paintings of them and then while I was there I ended up thinking a lot about how post-industrial places can actually be sort of aesthetically beautiful and I wrote an essay about the aesthetics of the post-industrial and a little bit about photographers like Edward Bertinsky and things like that but the more I read about it the more I realized that it wasn't only interesting from that aesthetic point of view but that it would these places can have really important sort of uh, ecological significance when you think about their biodiversity and so on. Well, you start of, one of the examples early on is these big sort of slag heaps that are near nearer, um, uh, you know, just outside the town, and they're a really. It's a really interesting place to start because it's the sort of thing. I mean, anyone who grown up in who grew up in this country will have seen something like that. You know, there was always did that bit just out of town that was where kids played when they didn't want their parents to know what they were up to. And it was the sort of respectable people didn't go there. You know, there was that sort of feel about it. So you went there. Just what did you find when you really look at that place? Yeah, great. Uh, I was talking about the Bings and West Lothian. And these are basically shale produced from oil shale mining 19th century as well and and when they were created they were really sterile bits of gravel that just piled up and and you find equivalent habitats in as you say sort of places like um former collieries anywhere like that when they start from zero and then over time they grow into these interesting layered habitats through this randomization process of, of recolonization. And uh, lots of different forces come into play. So for example, birds might fly through and drop seeds, or um, there's this rather beautiful process called seed rain, when um, seeds and small insects are sort of swept around up in the heavens and fall at random on different parts of the earth. And some of them survive and some of them don't. So you end up with these, it's a real assortment of stuff. And if you are interested in in plants and invertebrate life you can often find really like unusual species in places like this because it's almost like a blank canvas to begin with and then some things stick and some things don't and they're often things that you might never otherwise find together they're the sort of things brush shoulders with each other so yeah it's, it's it's really interesting and i think that point you made about you know everyone knows a place like this is really important because I think these havens of wild life become havens of wildness in all sorts of senses of the word. And if you're a teenager in a local area, you probably hang out in one of these places. It's, it's a sort of anarchic place in, in many different senses. And I think that that's something to celebrate. One of the things that comes through is that this is, it's not like, you know, this the, the sort of recolonization, which is the word that biologists use to dis describe this process of species you know arriving making a home there it's not that this is produces necessarily giant verdant forests or anything from the outside these places don't really look any different you know they they still look a bit grotty but this is about the things that have crept into the corners so you have to really look for the exciting stuff yeah i did, I guess, keep coming back to the idea of aesthetics and, and how we don't really value these places um, because, as you say, they don't look like picture postcard wildernesses. But in many ways, they are wildernesses because they are going completely uncontrolled, which in the Western world, and especially in Western Europe, is actually now quite rare. We don't really have large areas of ground which are completely sort of untended and un unlooked after. And so these 
places which appear to humans to be quite ugly, desolate, uncontrollable because you don't want to invest in them, they can be incredibly valuable when it comes to, especially invertebrate life. They're, they're, they tend to do very well in post-industrial sites. And so there's a charity called Bug Life. They do great work in sort of saving sites that otherwise might be redeveloped because people don't recognize their value. It doesn't look like the kind of place that we're used to trying to save. And so I talk about how we've got to sort of learn to look afresh at the world around us and, and see it for the value that it really has rather than this sort of superficial level of prettiness, which is not always tied to ecological health. And one of the things that comes out is this issue of timescales that we often these places have been abandoned for, for decades. You know, it's not something where you, you leave a you know, leave a heap of something and it net the following year there's all these interesting things. It takes time. And one of the, the examples that's really striking at the start is is Cyprus. You know, there's this band of land which is has been abandoned. It's it's basically there's a you know, disagreement over who owns it. And and so there were humans there. So it's it's not as if you know, it, but it hasn't taken very long for for these villages to, you know, sort of be taken over. Nature's sort of taking this space over. So what are the sort of timescales that that are involved? So it varies quite a lot. I mean, you'll you begin to see the first sort of plants taking hold within a couple of years, and and then after that, it really does depend on the climate. So Cyprus, in in many ways, the buildings that are sort of within the no man's land are surprisingly well preserved, mainly because of the climate. So if you go somewhere that's pretty wet and warm, those places become very verdant, very grown over, very quickly, um, and any sort of not human remains, but human. Uh, belongings, artifacts, don't tend to survive so well. So I went to, for example, the former capital of Montserrat in the Caribbean. That's a very tropical environment, very humid. A lot of the places there had been abandoned either since the late 90s or early noughties, and they were in much worse condition than places within the Cyprus no man's land where it is dry and and, and much less sort of grown over and picked over by by animals. So it does depend a lot on the climate, but um, you can see huge changes if you start thinking in terms of decades. Um, I think that's the, we're sort of talking maybe a human timescale from somewhere feeling sort of just abandoned, just sort of vacant and moving through what I became to see as a continuum through abandoned into uh, ruin, which is sort of the next step before it begins disappearing again. And so you begin to understand where different sites sort of exist on that continuum. And I don't know, it's sort of like when you learn more and more about wine, I, I began to feel like that about abandoned places. You learn to like appreciate the varying flavors that you have in different places of different ages and vintages. Well, some of the, one of the surprising things is is how, you know, we often think that that this, you know, the things that we humans do to landscapes pollute them, cover them in nasty stuff, poisonous things. You would think that that would stop all of this. But one of the examples, I mean, you went to Chernobyl, and this, the assumption has always been, you know, people moved out of Chernobyl because the radiation, you know, this was this is a massive human disaster, and the radiation was terrible, so people left. But nature hasn't left. I mean, so how, you know, tell us a little bit about Chernobyl and how, how bad can it get? I mean, is, is anything, does anything stop nature coming back completely? Yeah, absolutely. And I think uh, I'd better preface anything I say about Chernobyl, which is, of course, the actually the future of the site at the moment is very much up in the air. We're not entirely sure what's happening there at the moment. So this is sort of commenting from as it was when I visited. What had happened in the zone was that over 
period of 35 years since the, the accident, the radiation, which had come in a number of different forms according to the different isotopes, had sort of begun to decay. And so a lot of the isotopes that we, we as humans are, are most frightened of, especially iodine, that's the stuff that gets lodged in our thyroid gland and causes cancer. A lot of that has been sort of decaying away. I think iodine has a half-life of 14 years. So it, it, it does change, the conditions on the ground change. And some species are more sensitive to radiation than others. And that might be for a number of reasons. For example, birch trees are really hardy. They don't mind radiation. They will grow quite happily in areas that, that often kill pines. And so the pine forests, which previously predominated in the Chernobyl region, have sort of died away and are now replaced by especially silver birch. And also you have uh, larger mammals. They move around, which means that even if they do pass through the very dangerous areas, because it's, it's very unevenly spotted pattern, they just describe this sort of leopard pattern spotting of the radiation there. Um, so they might pass through areas which are, in our opinion, sort of dangerous levels of, of radiation, but then they might pass out the other side and be relatively unharmed. The majority of the zone, provided that the dust and so on is not being kicked up, is in the main, fairly safe for humans to, to travel through. In fact, when I was there, they said it might be the equivalent of, of taking, for example, a transatlantic flight. And background levels in some areas uh, of the zone are as low as, for example, the city of Aberdeen, because Aberdeen's built of granite, and granite is ever so slightly radioactive. But it varies a lot according to to where exactly you are in the zone, what that, the sort of history where the dust blew in the immediate aftermath of the blast. And also, there is a little bit of controversy over it, scientifically speaking. So there are a number of scientists who are much more alarmed by how the radiation has been impacting on um, particularly things that might... I don't know, digest leaf litter and so on, or small insects, things that are not so mobile. And so there's a little bit of back and forth, but I think the, the majority of scientists are more optimistic and certainly to visit the zone in a normal time, it was to be in a place that felt very much wild. I saw deer almost the second that I passed over the, the boundary into the area. There are wolves, they've returned after more than 100 years. There are bears, there are storks, there are all sorts of animals which really don't like to be disturbed by humans and in the zone they had been finding safe haven. Well, that's, I mean, in a way, that's, that, that is the, the, the point of your book is that is what happens when humans just get out of the way. You know, we, we hear a lot about schemes where someone wants to regenerate a landscape or rewild it in some active way and choose which species are going to go there. And actually, the, one of the messages I took away was that actually sometimes the best thing we can do is just go away. Is it as simple as that? I think... I think it's not so much that I'm I'm calling for more sites like this to exist. I think the point of these sites, the point of studying them, is that they tell us something important about our place in the world. As you sort of talk there, you know, we have this sense of considering ourselves to be sort of stewards somehow in control of the world and, and controlling how it even recovers from damage that we've done to it ourselves. And these places, I characterize them as sort of forbidden experiments. It would definitely be immoral for us to create them, but because they have been created and they have been ignored, it tells us a lot about, I guess, nature's powers of, of regeneration, recovery, redemption even. And I think that we can use what we glean from sites like this, which are really, they should be the 
worst places in the world, you know, what can we learn about how they recover and allow that to happen elsewhere so that we're not a wasting our efforts when nature might be able to do it ourselves and, and b also trying to avoid that sense of um, control freakery around how nature recovers, you know, like as we see in some of my sites, especially the most polluted sites, the way it recovers, it might not look anything like what it was before. So I went to a clearing in the woods in France, uh, near Verdun, where um, chemical weapons have been burned after the First World War. It's now very um, badly polluted with heavy metals in the soil. But it is quite interesting from a scientific viewpoint to look at sites like this, not only where chemical weapons have been burnt, but also, for example, mine tailings, anywhere where we have this sort of toxic trace. Now, toxic is kind of a, a matter of taste. Some species don't mind heavy metals and in fact do well. And those are quite, well, often they are quite rare and unusual species. And so in some parts of the UK, for example, where there has been metal mining, you might find triple SIs protecting heavy metal pollution. And then, you know, people are worried because in the past conservationists went in and tried to clear it, clear it up. Whereas now they've become sort of rare examples of particular plants, for example, things like spring sandboard, they love to grow in areas of high metal. So I think it is, you know, it's, it's a matter of, you know, one creature's poison is another one's manner. You know, it, it's very much learning to accept sometimes that perhaps it's not going to look the way it did before, but that's not to say it can't be valuable. And it's more just to have a sort of certain hesitation before we wade in all guns blazing. It's not that I think that it should be full, you know, environmental anarchy. It's more, what can we learn from this? Can we take a step back? You know, do we need to be in control here? So, it's not just one of the things you describe is that it's not just animals and plants that are creeping into these spaces. And you, and you mentioned this before, there are humans living in abandoned places, um, for example, in Detroit. And what sort of, how does it work for the humans then? Because they're by implication, they're also sort of abandoned, otherwise they wouldn't be there. You know, they're, they're, the rest of, they don't fit into the rest of society or they're there, they've sort of been left behind. So what, how, how do humans live in these places? I thought it was quite important, I suppose, to look at the, the psychology of abandoned places, how they affect us, because, um, well, to be honest, when I first started writing on this subject, I didn't really expect to be writing about humans at all. I sort of thought that by looking at abandoned places, that, that by definition meant it wasn't really about humans. But then as I explored abandoned places, even the, the most extreme examples, I realized that there are actually very few places in the world where there are truly no people, even places which are quote unquote abandoned. So people might be living in the ruins of buildings. They might be living in the wreckage of, of some kind of disaster. People choose on purpose to move back to places even after they have changed a great deal. So for example, within the Chernobyl exclusion zone, there is or, or certainly was a, a population of, so mostly they're called self-settlers, and these tend to be elderly people who couldn't adjust to life outside, especially the more urban life that they were given. And so they sort of trickled back into the zone to, to try and regain their old life, even though it had somehow changed. Uh, in an urban environment, I had to sort of ask that question of what does it mean for something to be abandoned if it's still peopled? You know, like Detroit, of course, as a city, is actually still very large, still populous, and in fact, many areas are doing very well. But it, it's, it's a sort of patchy 
picture in Detroit, there are sort of neighborhoods which are marked by very high levels of dereliction, abandonment, even areas where buildings have been completely knocked down and they're left as what's called locally as urban prairie. And that is quite a strange environment. And so I did feel that it qualified as abandonment, but I really had to interrogate exactly what that meant and talk to people on the ground. You know, I thought that was very important. Um, early on in the book, I, I quote Henry James talking about what he described as ruin questing, which was, um, I suppose, very similar to urban exploring today. And he said it could be a heartless pastime if you, uh, well, he said it was a heartless pastime. And I feel that's not necessarily the case, but for it not to be a heartless pastime, you have to think about these human stories. Who's there? Why are they there? You know, why did these places come to be abandoned in the first place? And in Detroit, it became a a kind of different story. It was about how people locally push back against the, the forces of destruction. They talk about it almost as a physical force, this abandonment. They call it the blight. And so I sort of dig into that concept a little bit. And then I, I talk about the attractions of abandonment elsewhere in a chapter really about urban explorers or homeless people who choose to live in urban ruins in Patterson and New Jersey. And that was much more about how, I suppose, abandoned places feel wild to us, how they allow us to act out, how they allow us to sort of question who we really are. And I think that that's very similar to what we were talking about right at the beginning when we talk about, you know, people haunting these strange sites in and around our daily lives. And often, you know, if you're not interested in that, your eyes will just slide over these places. But if you are, for example, lots of us will have done this as teenagers, you know, you know all of these sites, you know where the abandoned house in town is, where you can go hang out and smoke or whatever it is, you know, these are important places for us. These are sort of weird crucibles for, for the human psyche. And, and I think that that's important to dig into as well. So I ended up having a whole sort of section of the book that ended up looking at how we feel about abandoned places, how they make us feel and why we might choose to seek them out. Well, I wanted to come to that, the question of whether we actually look at them. You know, I, I have made a lot of TV documentaries in my time and I can tell you something that won't surprise you at all, which is that if there is something that looks human or abandoned or something, and you can point the camera the other way, you will, because we seek out the perfect view. We want it to look nice. And so we're sort of, we almost deliberately make these places invisible. It's, it's almost like they're written out of history. And I guess that that's why the people and the animals and the plants that live there are undisturbed. It, it's not, it, no one thinks to disturb them because they've become invisible. And how damaging do you think that is? I mean, do we need to just look, do we need to start pointing cameras at these places and going, look, this is what the world's really like, not the, you know, perfect tree, the one perfect tree over there. Look at look at what's going on over there. Well, I suppose it's kind of mixed, right? Because in many ways, the reason that we're not attracted to them is what has allowed them to thrive. You know, they, they become something interesting through that process. And so I don't know how I feel about it. You know, it's, it's, um, it's the example that I look at in the book is the High Line in New York, which, you know, this was uh, a derelict railway track, a raised railway line. And for many years, it was just sort of completely ignored. It ran through the city and it was sort of overgrown with this wild selection of weeds, basically. That's how, how they were seen to be. And then when when it was sort of noticed, it was turned into um, an area of green space, quote unquote, green space within the city that people could enjoy. And that meant it became a park, which meant that actually its sort of ecological value has 
probably plummeted. I mean, in terms of biodiversity, it will be high, but that's because lots of exotic plants have been planted there. And in terms of how many plants are actually keeping themselves alive, probably much less. And so value these sites in different ways, because now if you happen to live there, you probably really like the space. But if you value wild habitat and, and these sort of uncontrolled spaces, then maybe it was better what it was before. You know, so it's it's always a trade-off. And I think this book is full of these sort of uncomfortable trade-offs, you know, um, whether something is happening at the expense of the inhabitants or the expense of these places being polluted, and then something else is gaining. But that helped me, I think, understand that in nature, that that's almost always the case. It is dynamic. You know, something that suits one species won't suit another. And so as things change, different species come to the fore. And I don't know, I just find that sort of interesting, this 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 feeling of like constant shifting and changing is, I don't know, it's it's something to appreciate. <laughs> well, there are, there are your, your book does raise a lot of questions and I think it's very honest in not providing easy answers in a way, that these things are all a balance, you know, that humans, I mean, you know, people pay vast amounts of money to go on a holiday to a wilderness and they're probably not doing that wilderness any good. And they might be ignoring something that's quite close to them that has a you know a rare butterfly in it that they wouldn't see. And, and those questions about how we relate to our environment, I think, are really interesting because the only way to do it is to face it honestly, and it's hard. I did want to ask about the, you know, and I having just said that you don't provide easy answers, this is one of them. I'm going to ask you the question anyway, which is that what what is the risk in in talking about this, what's the risk that we kind of offer people a get out of jail free card? That, that the message that is taken away is, oh, well, nature's going to sort it all out. It's all fine. We can just carry on, you know, putting heavy metals in rivers and sinking things and all of that, and it'll just sort itself out. Well, I suppose the, the answer to that is a sort of, yes, and. So it's, it's you know, if you are insisting on doing this, a, it takes time for things to recover. And so if you are damaging environments on a grand scale, as we have been doing it for centuries now, there is a limit to how fast things can recover. And there's a, a limit to how extensively things can recover. Undisturbed spaces are particularly good for um, wildlife. So when I talk about the islands of abandonment, I'm talking often metaphorically, and this idea of an island of land is one that pops up again and again in ecology. And essentially, if you're looking at sort of huge islands, whether that be like one giant forest or, or a, I don't know, grassland or something like that, the bigger it is, the more different species it can support. And so if you are damaging these islands of, of landscapes, then that means that you're sort of chipping away at what they can support. So tiny islands of, of recovery is not really making up for the damage that you're doing. And I think one more point to make there is also we have to think about the different types of damage we can do. Sometimes we are damaging things aesthetically. So often things like leaving I don't know, wreckage or litter is is a fairly sort of surface level of damage and they it, it upsets us because we can see it. On the other end of the scale, we have things like very long-term radiation poisoning. So th this will be the, the kind of radioactive elements that take a very long time to decay. And we have things like persistent organic pollutants, which essentially, at least from a human point of view, will last forever. These are not flesh wounds. These are serious injuries we're inflicting on the environment. So I think it also helps for us to understand when it comes to understanding what can be quote unquote 
forgiven by the earth, we really need to zero in on the long-term impacts of things, especially things like persistent organic pollutants, these sort of chemical traces that we're going to leave forever on the planet, but also things like climate change as well, because that is a permanent change. So I think that that helps. It's not that everything's fine and we should just go on sort of polluting and killing and <laughs> digging things up. It does help us also prioritize what we need to stop as soon as possible. And is there is there a part of this which is about, I mean, f- just taking the current, so you, you visited a, a, you know, a place that had had, as you said, chemical weapons destroyed, the, the, you know, the, the, f- the battlefields of Verdun, which were just turned to mush, basically. But when, and when we... You know, watching the the current conflict in Ukraine now and events like that, we're obviously human life is the priority, and no one is ever going to argue with that. But does I mean it? It doesn't sound right to to in, because the human life is so important to say, well, what about the environment in some ways? But it's it's happening in the background. What we damage ourselves, and we also damage the environment, and they they do sort of go together, right? Yes, definitely. I mean, Verdun is a really good example. You know, I think it was something like ten thousand years of natural erosion happened during the space of the First World War there. You know, and if you look at pictures of what happened there, I mean, the entire landscape is pulverized. So yeah, those these two things go together. Human aggression often impacts far more than ourselves, and I think that that's. I don't know, it, it adds another layer of sorrow onto these human disasters that we are seeing unfolding in front of us. I, at the end of all this, I mean, it, it must have been simultaneously harrowing and interesting to visit a lot of these places. Did you take, do you take away pessimism or do you take away optimism? What, what are the lessons here? I think, hmm, it's a really interesting question. I think perhaps it depends on your own personal psychological makeup. I think generally I came away feeling quite optimistic in as much as the places I visited often felt much more sort of vividly alive than I thought we had any, I don't know, reasonable hope to consider them to be. So uh, as I said, you know, Montserrat was a really good example. It's not been... So this is around half of the island, certainly the southern portion of the island is within a strict exclusion zone. Other parts of it are in sort of looser exclusion zones you can enter during the day, but um, sort of large suburbs are, I suppose, open to the elements. And many areas of that now feels like quite dense jungle. See sort of iguanas and all sorts of animals running around and it feels quite sort of rich with life. So in places like that, I think, yeah, you have this this sense of um, this sort of horror. The, the disaster is on such a large scale. Really, the only touchstone I had, the only thing I could relate it to, I suppose, were things like disaster movies. And in a strange way, we're sort of weirdly familiar with these scenes because we've seen them imagined for so long. But the change is that that feeling of the presence of other species, the, the way that other species step into a gap as we move away from it. And I think that that is very reassuring. I don't know why exactly it is, but it's this sense that, you know, like, I don't know, one day all this will be dust, you know, like the, the, our, our problems, what we do to the earth, all of these things, you know, one day perhaps we won't matter so much. And I think that there's something really oddly, perversely, morbidly reassuring about all of that and understanding the tiny <laughs> scale of yourself in comparison to the rest of the world, the non-human world and all of time is, um, yeah, it helps you feel a, a little bit better about your minor crises. <laughs> Thank you.
Do you think there's an argument here for just deliberately setting aside land? You know, I mean, there are problems of populations and how you feed them. And, you know, there's a lot of kind of practical problems. But in principle, is is there something here which says, look, even if you haven't got money, basically, because a lot of these environmental questions are, oh, well, we can't afford to do that. We can't afford to protect it. We can't. Is, is it, is there something which is a, might be as simple as saying, well, look, we commit to if something comes up, we'll just put a fence around it and walk away. And we'll make, you know, if it's a big enough area, we'll do that instead of having a half and half solution. Could humans, I mean, humans are terrible at walking away from things. You know, we always want to poke things. <laughs> do, is, do, you think, do you think it's ever possible that we could actually decide that this is a strategy that when it's like this, we will just leave it alone well that's really similar to like eo wilson i had the half earth theory which was that we should sort of hand over half the earth to to itself i suppose and so like this is a way of thinking that exists i guess the the problem with the with the issue it comes down to like well what half you know like who who has to give it up and i think uh, i'm certainly not pushing for more land to be taken from people you know that if you look at the history of of things like national parks or strict nature reserves that is almost um it's like a roll call of of terrible practices of pushing mainly indigenous people off their land and so this is where people don't sort of respect the the ownership of other people because they perceive it to be wild and so it, it is sort of laced with these i don't know terrible sort of logistical questions i think one area where this is almost happening by itself and on a grand scale is um, abandoned farmland, which I, I again, I talk about in, in the context of the former USSR, largely because huge tracts of farmland have just fallen into disuse. And But we see this pattern all across the world. We've, we saw it in North America, particularly in the 20th century, as people were moving sort of to the Midwest and much of New England, for example, became incredibly forested. In a way, it probably hadn't been before. So places like Maine is now like 80% forest, which it wasn't before. And so I think places marginal far farmland so quote unquote marginal farmland is across much of the world already falling into to disuse so i think if people are choosing to leave areas there might be an opportunity there for conservation whether that's just sort of buying up the land that as ever it comes with a trade off you know you that means that you're seeing in human terms the the sort of loss of rural culture, rural history, all of that kind of thing. So the, I think there's no there's no easy answer, but I think certainly if you're coming from an ecological perspective, you might see opportunities there. Well, uh, I have had my turn asking the question, so now it's the audience's turn. So we're going to start with the obvious question, and I don't think there's a name attached to it, but it was what was the favourite place that you visited? What was your favourite place? Probably that abandoned botanical garden in Tanzania. I think every time anyone asks me this, I always give a different answer. But um, <laughs> I think um, that was very cool just because I had such a fun time there. I turned up really not knowing what I was going to find. This former, it had been a botanical garden and then it had become like, uh, so the, the German imperial forces created it as a, a botanical garden. British colonial forces turned it into a malaria lab and now it's been absorbed into a forest park and a lot of the plantations started by the germans have sort of fallen into well they've just been left and so it was really interesting from a scientific point of view but also just like personally i just sort of had to turn up i took like 10 different modes of transport to get there it was really at the top of a mountain and going from like the the hot dry plains in tanzania right up to the top of the cloud forest and then when i got there there were two 
tropical botanists who were there to study and spread the word about invasive species, which meant that they gave me all of the research that I needed. It was just one of those trips when it felt like the stars aligned. I saw chameleons, I saw glowworms, the whole thing was rather wonderful and, and sort of dreamy. And you don't get that many research trips when, when things just fall into place like that. So <laughs> that was a really good trip. <laughs> it always helps if it's tropical and warm. And sunny as well. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Uh, we've got another question here from Keenan, and it, it's about water. Did you place? Did you visit any places uh, suffering from extreme drought? And how does? Because obviously, you know, life is all fine, but you do need some. Life does need some basic things, mm. and water is one of them. So how does that work? Yeah, in fact, uh, probably the the final chapter I go to an area called the Salton Sea. I think that ties quite closely with your area of interest. So this was a, I guess you'd call it a man-made lake. It was created by accident when an irrigation channel, canal sort of opened and it poured waters into what had been like a big flat playa. And it created for a few decades this really beautiful freshwater sea or lake. And it was really popular for, for holiday makers. It's quite close to Palm Springs on the scale of things. And it is really beautiful sort of desert area, but over time it's been evaporating away. And the problem now is, well, A, it's extreme temperatures. It's, it's still very much a desert, even though there's still water left. And then all of this sort of agricultural runoff, they were using the water to irrigate the area. And then the, the runoff returned to the water. It's become sort of full of toxic stuff. You know, there's lots of chemicals. There's lots of, um, when it, as it's drying out, it leaves the dust and the sort of mud and then that gets whipped up in the desert air and it causes lots of problems of asthma. So that is not really, I mean, I don't think I could really describe it as a ecological success story. You know, it's still notable for the birds, but the more poisonous the water comes in, the, the more problems they have with things like botulism. So no, that's kind of a vision of a, of a, a bad future. You know, I think that's kind of why I ended the story there. It is, you know, Dryness, aridity is a serious problem. It's something that is a sort of looming problem with climate change in these hotter regions of the earth. Biodiversity doesn't really thrive in areas of dryness. And so that is something that we must all be concerned about. And, and there I find the sort of Mad Max future of people building things out of the rubble. And I think that that was a warning note that one has to, to end on. When you write a book like mine, yes, it's full of hope. It is a redemption story. Yes, yes, yes. And yet, you know, we're, we are playing with a dangerous game with our own habitat, our own world, and it doesn't necessarily have a happy ending. And I think that from a responsibility point of view, I, I did kind of had to end with that sort of note of, of anxiety. Well, as someone who works in climate science, it's not. I think I was. I, it sounds terrible. I was almost. I was almost happy that the book ended with that for that reason. That you know, we keep saying that drought, severe drought, and severe rainfall are going to become more common. And it's not really clear what that means to a lot of people because water comes out of taps. And I think you set that out very well. And um, we've got another question here from Stuart. There's been a couple on this theme, and it is: Where do you stand on the rewilding debate in the UK? <laughs> yeah, it's just it's so hard actually to express opinions. Rewilding because the word rewilding means such different. It has so many different definitions, and I think generally the generally I'm sort of pro this idea of um, allowing natural mechanisms to come back into play. Like generally, I think that one could say that this is what rewilding is. Am I pro sort of the return of different species? Generally, yes. I think it's something that 
I personally don't want to get too caught up in if it's individual species. I, I like to keep that sort of wider look. Would I like to see things like wolves return? Sure. It's, but to me, like, I think also that's not necessarily the only um, sign of a healthy environment and that there are lots of other things as well. So yeah, I'm, I'm generally pro rewilding. It's kind of difficult to to comment more specifically after that. <laughs> it, no, it's fair enough. I mean, I actually think the world, the word rewilding should be banned because it just, everybody interprets it differently and you're not having a discussion. Right. If you talk about, should there be an otter, then you can have a discussion. But if you mention the word rewilding, everyone, you immediately, you, you know, there's no discussion. It's it's unconstructed from the start. Anyway, that's my sure. two Oh yeah. And also Go. just generally because, because rewilding has become a really sort of popular watchword. One wonderful thing that's come from that is that lots of people think almost in terms of like rewilding on tiny scales, like in their garden. And I think that's only a good thing. So like leaving things to be untidy, you know, not putting away clippings, all of this kind of stuff is actually, especially when it's done on this mass scale, which I think lots of people are doing, then that can only be a good thing. So sure, sure, great. <laughs> Give the hedgehogs a chance. Exactly. Right. <laughs> there is a question without a name, this one. Um, are there other abandoned places you abandoned places you would like to have visited but you didn't and what would you have written about if you had yes so many i keep learning about more and more interesting places i think one uh one thing that i feel maybe it's kind of missing from the book i didn't get to asia really and i didn't get to south america so just generally like whole geographical areas are, are, are missing and i would like to write more about i was really keen to go to Possibly to Svalbard because there are some quite well photographed former mining settlements there. And I know in certain areas of Siberia along the sort of border with permafrost, there are some settlements which are sort of increasingly abandoned. I think I didn't find out a huge amount about them. And I don't know, it's always with these things, it's sort of a, a a trade-off, I keep coming back to that, of sort of like, well, how much can I know about it before I get there? do I know that this will definitely go somewhere? So I would I would really like actually to to write about more places in the Arctic just out of a sort of personal love for cold places. <laughs> yeah, and, and get there before it all changes because it's all changing really quickly. Right. So this, you, you, see, you touched on this before, but it, this is sort of specific question. Is to what extent does farming contribute to damaging natural landscapes? And I guess you, the sort of extension is, is our modern farming practices damage, you know, just because there's plants growing, does that necessarily mean it's healthy? Yeah, that's a really good question because what it does flag up is this huge continuum within agriculture. So probably at the far end of like most harmful, you have these like monocultural deserts really when you've only really got one species for enormous swathes of a place. And also to create that, you might have completely changed permanently the, the drainage of, of a whole landscape. You know, that that is where you see farming at its most harmful. Um, on the other end of the scale, um, you have sort of smaller scale farming, um, which can be, it can sort of coexist with a lot of different species. So if you're interested in rewilding, you probably know quite a bit about how people are now sort of bringing back things like long-hung cattle and so on. And in fact, in Estonia, on sort of the edges of some of the abandoned farmland, they were sort of anxious that the trees that were regrowing, these forests that are sort of sweeping Estonia might be not biodiverse enough because actually thick forest is not particularly biodiverse when you compare it to, for example, sort of 
I don't know what you'd call it, sort of like open grassland with some trees and so on and so forth. So they were sort of experimenting with having low-level cattle grazing there to, to try and make these places as rich as possible. That's still quite a controlled environment, but that's not to say that it's... No, that's not what I mean. It's, it's not necessarily a controlled environment. It's a human-impacted environment, but that's not to say that's a bad thing. You know, places where that we've had these sort of almost like low level or, or non-intensive farming, especially if that's lasted for centuries, that often comes hand in hand with lots of species that have adapted to these conditions and do really well there. For example, hedgerows for, are, are very rich in different species. So you see almost like wildlife positive farming. And I've seen a really interesting book by Fred Pierce called A Trillion Trees when he talks about the benefits of farming, particularly in tropical countries where you might be farming but also have an, a strip of trees along the side of every field or something like this and, and how much that can add to it. So you, I think we need to not be too purist when we think about steps forward with the environment and actually continuing on with activities like farming but just allowing a bit more space. If you do that in every field, that adds up to a huge amount. And so it helps, I think, for us to understand that, that there is a porosity between sort of human-controlled landscapes and, and non-human controlled landscapes. Well, there's a question here that follows on very naturally from that, which is, are the species whose growth you think is, is bad? I mean, is, is all, are all species good, basically? Will nature always adapt and that's always a good thing? Or do some of them actually make it worse? Oh, great question, because I think this waves towards something else which is like I just find so fascinating which are like the moral value that we often place on other species so instinctively we tend to dislike species like rats especially black rats and uh, urban foxes and so on we uh, pigeons we, we find kind of gross and disgusting and that's not because they're necessarily any more gross and disgusting but there is a sort of a familiarity that we have with them that that makes us disapprove of them and I think it's a little bit like tall poppy syndrome. So they do so well from the environments that we create that, um, you know, we feel that we can be kind of careless about the value of their lives. And so I think uh, often people don't like them because they seem to be doing well at the expense of other rarer or more fragile species. I don't know that I particularly agree with that. You know, these are essentially evolutionary success stories. These are the species that are doing really well in the planet as it is today. I don't think it's very healthy for us to put these sort of moral judgments on them. Saying that you can use them as a, as a measure, it's like an indicator species of like what an environment might be like. So if, if something like rats are doing really well, it might be because they have relatively recently arrived and are, you know, they're, they're bursting all over the place and, and that's the signifier of an environment being out of whack. So um, that is still very freshly being impacted by humans, if you see what I mean. And often over time, these environments settle down. So they can be seen as a kind of indicator as to the health of environments, certain species like, like rats. But um, I, th I think it's very healthy for us to learn not to sort of hate species on site and not to feel that there's sort of forces of good versus evil, which we see often in the way that we characterize for example, like grey versus red squirrels. We're often very unkind about grey squirrels, which, which is fine. You know, you, you can love gray, like red squirrels and want them to survive. But um, I think we, you know, uh, if you speak to people who, who work in this, they have to be really careful not to demonize them. And, you know, like, that's, a, that's a weird, weird role for us to play. 
There's a sort of tyranny of the cute, isn't there? That basically, <laughs> humans will, if it's cuter, it's always it's always the underdog, and we will always, you know, fight for the underdog. <laughs> There's a question here about aquatic ecosystems and coral reefs, how their decline affects aquatic ecosystems, which is another. I mean, it's a gigantic area. Mm. Uh, but but did you did you think about aquatic environments at all? A little bit. I do brush onto it. I think it's it's probably a little bit beyond the scope of of my project just because it's, it's a, a different way of thinking. I talk a little bit about the recovery of the bikini atoll, but that's very much in, in sort of passing because uh, it's, a, it's an interesting example of how places can flourish when they fall out of, well, not the bikini atoll ever fell out of our attention span exactly, but um, our disturbance of the site was very minimal after one incredible huge disturbance. And so like seeing recovery there is... Is very interesting, but but I think probably the answer to that is no. Sorry. And there's a, another question here about uh, radiation impact on environments, and and I guess you, it says you know do you have any strong opinions on nuclear power and its risks, which is slightly you know slightly loaded question at the moment. But um, what what about radiation impact more generally then? I think we're rightly anxious about it, just because it, it is it's playing with fire and the the. Time scale that damage that radio uh, sorry radioactive damage can be on is of a whole other plane. Whereas you know we as 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 we're seeing at the moment, you know like our social and political landscape changes a lot in the space of a, a single human's lifetime. And so I think we have to be very careful about um, playing with things which last much longer and have much longer impact. Sorry, I've forgotten the other aspect of that question. Oh, well, just about the, the nuclear power, opinions on nuclear power, you know, in principle, I guess. Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty anxious that. about it. <laughs> mm. Humans are very bad at timescales, aren't they? We, we think everything operates at our timescale and, and sort of conveniently forget that most of it, almost all of it is either much faster or much slower. It's amazing. Like, I, I, I think it's amazing that humans have time blindness like yes. that. Yes, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Our brains just don't, don't work in that way. And so... There's a question about, I mean, you make lots of, you, you open up lots of philosophical questions in the book, but the question here is, do you, is your sort of philosophical point that humans just aren't that important, really? The world's going to go on without us and, you know, we should just not worry about it too much. Yes and no. I mean, we certainly have an impact. It all depends on what scale you're looking at. You know, so if, if you're looking at, at the world and in the context of deep time, then maybe we don't matter. If you're looking at the world in, in the context of what we what might happen to the world because of humans in the next hundred years, then we're the dominant force at play. So it, I find it's very difficult to, I think climate change, I think is the, is the, is the big unspoken thing in, in every discussion of the environment at the moment. And I think just the way that I think about it moves so much from day to day. Just sometimes I'm full of despair and other times I've got this sort of weird hope and then other times it's despair again. And I, I think, um, I feel like that sort of in answer to your question, which is that sometimes I think we don't matter and then other times it feels like we matter more than anything else and I can't seem to settle on a, a single position. Well, that's the great thing about being human, isn't it? The ability to hold multiple viewpoints at the same time and select the one which is most useful. Um, so there's a really a really good question here about, uh, you know, you mentioned Detroit. Do you think there's a political element to why places are abandoned and maybe how we deal with them? How does that work? Oh, yeah, of course. I mean, uh, 
Detroit's a very powerful example of that. I think what that reflects, you know, I've talked a lot about how, how humans value other species. And I think that this question is more waving towards the question of how humans value other humans. And I think the the areas are sometimes allowed to fall into abandonment out of hopelessness. I think sometimes they are allowed to fall into abandonment because, I don't know, sort of economic forces and so on. But the, the politics is right there at the heart of it and sort of I think uh, certainly, sorry, I'm not going to have a very clever answer to this, but certainly politics <laughs> and politics plays a very important part. And when we, when we are facing, I'd say, urban decline, but also rural decline, there are going to be better ways of, of dealing with it than others. And it, but the, the, the thing is that it's, it's, it's a difficult situation. So um, I guess what we have to do is sort of look at examples of places that have gone into decline and see what we can learn and try and improve our reaction in future when we find other, I don't know, single industry cities going into decline or things like this. I don't know. And we're going to the end, so I'm going to sneak in with another question here, which is about the the, the discussions that your book has opened up. You know, I'm curious about whether you've had reactions from perhaps, I don't know, the councils who are looking after that sort of old quarry or the people who are making decisions. What kind of reaction have you had back from society on these ideas yeah really mixed actually um i think i've I've had quite a few messages from people who've said that they've felt inspired to get involved in like local conservation efforts to sort of save patches of ground that have been abandoned for long times and are are sort of facing redevelopment in one form or another so that's really interesting to hear about i've spoken to quite a few academics who sort of work in these various areas. For example, I'm, I'm talking to a group in America who are interested in forestry growth because that is something, you know, I talked about that a little bit earlier about the scale that it's happening on across the world. And so that's going to very much be an area of study. So yeah, it's, it's a real mix. I, I, it's just been really nice to be in touch with so many people, I guess, who, who care about the world around them and want to do the best thing and I think the the issue often with conservation is that everyone involved wants to do the right thing but the right thing is not always obvious and then you end up as sort of loggerheads at each other because you have these various competing philosophies and so I think just like my main thing is like trying to go into things with an open mind and the the open, more open the mind the better so my book is certainly not one that has easy answers I don't think answers are easy so let's talk <laughs> Well, I think that we are out of time and that is a great place to finish. So thank you very, very much. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. 
We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships.